Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and my guest in this episode is author, speaker, and facilitator, Leah Metha. Leah's latest book is called Steer Through the Storm. It's a step-by-step guide to help leaders pilot their team through turbulent times. Shifting priorities, a massive change agenda, whatever the challenge, Leah maintains that it's the soft skills that really matter. Too many leaders are tasked with leading significant organizational change without a clear understanding of the foundations of success, and she's here to change that for you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Leah Metha. Leah Metha, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, David. Look, it's a pleasure to have you, Leah. I'm really super eager to talk all things change with you and talk about your change model that you so articulately describe in your new book, which is called Steer Through the Storm. But before we get there, I actually want to talk to you about your first book. And I'm a bit surprised that we missed each other because I've spoken to so many people in Australia who've written professional books around leadership and communication over the last few years, but I missed this one. And I'm quite sad that I did because the title has gripped me. Soft is the new hard, how to communicate effectively under pressure. Sounds fabulous. Tell me a little bit about that concept without going into the detail, because I'm sure you've publicized that one to death. I'm interested just in the nub of it and then your thoughts as to how it links to the topic that we'll talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. So soft is the new hard is really playing with the concept that soft skills, what have been dubbed the soft skills, communication, leadership, all those interpersonal basic human skills that are essential to our success but aren't job or industry specific. For a really long time, they have been dismissed as the nice to have, the fluffy extra, the not important stuff because your hard technical skills are the bits that matter, right? But over the years through my work with leaders in a whole range of industries, the thing that just kept coming up again and again, and I work with a lot of leaders who were promoted off the back of their technical skills and experience, never taught how to lead, and then they find themselves in a leadership role and they say to me things like, Leah, why does no one tell you the people bit is the hardest part? So I was seeing again and again that, you know, this whole idea that, again, I it's an audio medium, so you can't see me doing the inverted commas with my fingers, listeners, but, you know, there's nothing soft or easy about these skills. These are the foundational skills that are so essential to our success, and they're bloody hard. They're really hard. They're tough. They can absolutely be learned, improved, and developed, but you've got to be willing to do the work, and the, the really vulnerable, honest self-reflection. So, that's the idea behind that book. It was helping leaders it was written for, but really helping anyone to go, how do I step up for success? A lot of the time it comes down to how well I communicate with other people. And to do that, I've actually got to go deep within myself and start with me. It's not about other people. It starts with us. And I suppose, how does it link to my new book on leadership through change? Well, really, they both start from the same place, and that is self-leadership, which you can't lead anyone else until you're first leading yourself. I love that truism. It's so powerful. We'll come back and talk about that. 
But, you know, I'm freshly minted 48-year-old Leah. I had a birthday last week, I think. And I reckon as someone of my era, one of the great changes that's happened through my career, and I started off as a teacher before moving into consulting, communication and leadership space, one of the great changes has been the acceptance or the normalized approach to how important soft skills are. It was almost something that I could still feel the residue of mocking those type of thoughts when I first entered the workforce. And through those couple of decades that I've been in the workforce, it's really become normalized and accepted and embraced as so very valuable. So I imagine when you wrote your book, it landed on a really receptive market. What still blows me away is Daniel Goldman, I guess, is maybe the figurehead of soft skill and understanding emotional intelligence. And it still amazes me that his book, Emotional Intelligence, was published in 1995. And that feels really recent. It feels really recent to me because I'm, you know, very much middle-aged man these days. So 1995 still feels very recent. But in the in the evolution of humans and 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 our our modern history, that's not that long ago. And for us, for the idea of those soft skills and emotional intelligence to be labeled only what less than 30 years ago still seems amazing to me. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the Industrial Revolution has a lot to answer for, right? It was well, it, it was into about machinery mm. and people as numbers and it wasn't about the human. And it's interesting you say, you know, given it came out only a few years ago in 2019, may have hit a receptive audience. In some ways, yes, but I've got to say a lot of the people I work with are still the skeptics and I actually love working with the skeptics. Well, They're my favourite people to work with. So industries like mining and the power industry, traditional blue-collar workers, I do a lot of work in that space as well as uh, a lot of government agencies and the like. So even though this concept has been around since about 95, which, again, scheme of things isn't that long, I actually find there are still a lot of people who just don't get it or they've heard about it before and they kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's meant to be important, but they still dismiss it as the fluffy stuff. And I I often say there's two key reasons that for a lot of leaders and anyone in particular, there's two main reasons that we haven't been taught this stuff. The first one is that for a really long time, skills like communication were considered innate. You're either born good at it mm. or you're not. Mm. It's fixed. It is mm. what it is. My personality, and there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> and that's rubbish. That is absolute rubbish. It's great These to let yourself skills. off the hook, though. Oh yeah, isn't it? It's, it's great, great to just go bad luck. Uh, this is, this is who I. This it. is who I am. Like it or lump it. And my challenge to those people is to say, actually, no. These are skills. Anyone can learn. And I get challenged on that sometimes. People say, oh, can you really teach anyone to develop these skills? And I say, yes, absolutely, on two conditions. One, if you're willing to learn, and two, if you're willing to do the work. If you sit there going, bet you can't teach me, Leah, well, then I can't. I'm not a magician. Mm. But if you're willing to learn and do the work, you can develop them. The second main reason I think a lot of people have never been taught these skills or, or chosen to learn and grow them is because for a really long time, they were considered the fluffy extra, the nice to have, but not as important as my technical agree, degree Sorry, in accounting or, or engineering. medicine, engineering. I do work with a lot of engineers. I bet and you do. I, 
yeah, those industries. Yeah, it, and, it's amazing because, as you said at the beginning, there it's in those industries that's the core skill, and they're the people that rise to the top in senior leadership positions because they're great engineers. And somehow yes. we expect them to be great leaders, and that's the massive leap. No. So anyway, I digress. It's, but it, it, you're so spot on, right? They get promoted off the technical skills and abilities into a job that doesn't need as much of the technical ability. It needs the peopling because suddenly it's not about them being the best engineer. It's about them getting the best out of the engineers underneath them, and that requires the people skills. Now, as no doubt you're aware, it's not just me banging on or you banging on, David, about the importance of these soft skills. It's the likes of Deloitte right. Access Economics, ComBank, Google, you know, technical fields saying, actually, the future is in soft skills. Yes, we hear a lot about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths, but with AI, with all of these things happening, actually, if we want to future-proof our careers, if we want to position ourselves for the future, we need to develop these soft skills because they're hard to outsource and automate. So many things can be outsourced and automated, but your peopling, your compassion, your leadership, that's actually what sets us apart. And that is our differentiator moving into the future. You know, we're yeah. all coming to groups with chat GPT and what it can do. And, and, and it still amazes me over the, the last few months, the, the people who say to me, oh, by the way, I've been using chat GPT for my work. It's amazing. I use it for this. I think, wow, this is, we've been hearing about AI coming and it feels like that's the first one that is really tangible in our face and it's really touched us. And as that rolls out and it becomes more part of our life, it's our humanness, which is going to differentiate us. So it's not our engineering anymore. It's, it's less yeah. so now than it was 20 years ago. And in 20 years from now, it'll be unrecognizably not so. But those human qualities are the things that we can grip onto and become great at. I just realized how ridiculous I sounded five minutes ago when I talked about, oh, it was only in 1995. It just makes me realize how old I am. And I really am old. My number is big. I'm old. I remember when I was a kid, I used to wonder why my parents banged on about stuff that happened in the 60s and 70s. I used to think, what are you talking about? That is so ancient. It's not even relevant. Don't mention it. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. And now, yeah. you know, for me, the 90s are my parents' 60s and 70s, and I still oh, think same. about that as just the other day. What, what an old man I've become. No. It's, it's, it's amazing I was even able to plug in the microphone tonight, Leah. All right. Hey, so for listeners, if you like the sound of that soft as a new hard as much as I do, I think it sounds fabulous, Leah, you might want to go back and look into Leah's first book as well. But we're here to talk about her second book, which is Steer Through the Storm, it's all about change. You've come up with a change model. It's called the five C's leading courageously through change. And I'm going to make you work for it tonight, Leah, and, and talk us through that. But before we get there, I want to acknowledge, I love the way that your book is pitched, not entirely, but at the beginning to give it the shape at that middle management. The people who are told from head office, from the big boss, from the board, from the CEO, or whoever it might be in your organization you've got to implement this change on the ground to your troops, the people on the front line and whatever industry it might be, whether it's mining or disability services, or, you know, just, you can think of any industry where that can happen. Head office in some big city somewhere probably has decided on a change for all sorts of big strategic reasons. It's going to mainly affect the people on the coalface of the business and the people who have to implement the change are there that day-to-day -day leader of the coalface. And they are the sandwich. They are sandwiched between 
the senior decision makers who are probably making decisions for good reasons and the people on the front line who have a reluctance to change and a, a suspicion of change, they've got to sell it. And I've long had this thought, Leah, when I work in organizations around communication and change, that those middle managers, they inherently know, okay, change is coming. There's something in them that knows, okay, there's probably a good reason for it. I mean, the world is changing so quickly. Of course, our organization's got to change with it, whether it's a roster change or a system change or a whatever change. Of course, we're going to have to. But I feel disconnected from the decision-making and I spend all day, every day with these frontline staff. But I feel like I should be doing some leading here, but I don't know what that is. And I think the reflex for a lot of frontline managers for want of anything else to do when the buzz starts coming through about the change, because they don't know what they can do productively, they amplify the concerns of the front line back to senior leaders, back to head office. They turn, they chat at the, at the mine site or the disability services site, and then they turn around, they, they listen to the concerns, and because they want to lead, they want to do th- something, and their default is to often go into bat for the people they spend all day with. They turn around to head office and then just amplify the concerns. We're really worried about this. We're really worried about that. And what I love about your book is it actually gives that cohort something really productive and positive to cling on to, a process to follow that is useful. So pleased to hear that because I think with this book, you're right. It's not that a CEO can't learn from it too. Absolutely they can. But I think there's such a gap in the difference between leading change literature that's out there, there's a lot out there on managing change or leading change. When you're the decision maker, you're implementing a change and you're you know, getting your messaging right and gathering the troops and you're going to roll this change out. But what I was interested in is what do you do when change is happening to your team or your organisation and it's not your change? You might be the CEO, but it might be a government change. It might not be your change. It might be external factors. Uh, external factors. But you might be that middle manager and the change is happening whether you like it or not. You might not like it either. There might not be a win in it for your people and you're the one who has to sell the message. And I, I think you're right. I think a lot of people in that middle ground, they're not even sure what role they have as a leader. And I describe it in the book. I say very often I see people go into one of three roles. I see some leaders go into steamroller mode and they just see it as, well, Boom. upper this management told me yep. this is a change. All my job is to tell my team this is what's happening. Job like it done. or lump it. That, like it or lump it. It's not my change. I'm just the messenger. Bang, here you go. And now I'm going to crush all resistance because this is just what's coming in, folks. Others do what you suggested where – they either shirk it or they they almost abdicate their leadership role. They mm. see it as, oh, I'm particularly at supervisor level, right, mm. where you're really close to your team. I've got to support uh, my, my team. I've got to support the troops. That's it. I've got to go into bat for them. them. I'm their voice. Absolutely. So it's almost like you're falling into the us versus them. Mm-hmm. I'm team on the ground and management, upper management are the baddies. Mm-hmm. Or they just totally shirk responsibility entirely and they see it as, I've got no role in this. This isn't me. This isn't my decision. It's not my change. So they shirk it. Where I want to get leaders to, and some leaders get there on their own, but a lot need support, is 
to steer people through the change. And my argument is if change is happening in your organization that impacts your team, if you are a people leader, you absolutely have a responsibility and a role to guide your people through that change the best way possible. And that's what I'm interested in. This isn't about being team anyone. It's about saying this is happening, whether we like it or not, and I need to try to guide people through so that they emerge the best way possible, still doing great work, still hitting the targets for our organisation, but also in okay shape themselves. I don't want everyone traumatised and falling apart from the change. And I think I first had the idea from for this book pre-COVID. I was doing some work off the back of my first book with leaders in the coal firepower industry. And some of them were saying to me, you know, our coal power plants have been closed. They're being closed. They're being shut down. And we don't like it either. What do we do about it? And to those leaders, it was me saying, you've still got a role here to support and help your people through, but they just didn't know what it was. And that was the aim with this book, to come in and support them through and provide them with that guidance. I love those archetypes, the archetypes you painted there, the three. There's when a change is happening, the leaders or, or middle management or, or frontline management will fall into one of three roles. They become a steamroller and say, hey, my boss has told me to do it, so you're doing it now. That's it. End of story. End of discussion. You know? The middleman, the, the one that I think I described, the amplifier of concerns, the one yeah. that says, oh, I've got to go into bat for my people. I'm their, I'm their leader. I'm their voice. I've got to use my time in head office to amplify what they're worried about. And then the other one is the shirker, the one that just sort of disappears from it all together and, and says, well, I'm not, you know, shows themselves to be no leader at all, not even a bad leader, just no leader no. at all. And you want them to steer toward, you know, you want to turn them into people who can steer, the steer change, mm-hmm. to lead courageously through the change. And just incidentally, as you talked about, coal mines and coal-fired power plants, and we all have heard of you. You've probably heard of climate change, Leah, and you may even have sure heard that has. we're not doing a great job of responding to it. We're, um, we're at boiling point. And isn't that a failed change process at a national and global level? You know, the idea sure that, I mean, of course, there are people, it's like changing a roster in an organization. There might be great reasons for changing the roster, but if someone loses they're going to be upset because they've lost personally. This is on a a small scale. On a large scale, people who work in a mine site, a coal mine site, are going to think, hang on, I lose. If we don't open new coal mines or we don't expand coal mines, I lose my well-paid job. Yeah, that might be true. But the other side of the equation is the environment and the, the, the future of mankind. So in between that, there's just a good change process. There's just... Helping people understand the significance of the change. We've done a really bad job of that. And a lot of our politicians become that manager that I described. Rather than being a leader, courageously leading, they become someone who just amplifies the concerns of the people they manage. So it's it's the conservative politicians, the old-style thinking politicians, who are simply using their position to amplify the concerns of people who are just worried about themselves. And here's the thing too. There's a lot of the coal miners who are totally on board. They get with, They understand. They get yeah, climate they get change. They yeah. get mm. that they need to transition. Mm. What they're asking for is the support to transition. Yeah. Mm. And 
the region that I'm from, we so I'm from a region in Victoria, eastern Victoria, where the coal-fired power stations are, and in the 1990s, the Conservative Kennett government privatised it. Mm. And thousands of people lost their jobs. And it was done really, really badly with no care for people, with no leading them through. And it had a massive impact on this region. Victim mindset set in. And as a child who saw that, because I'm not that much uh, younger than you, I'm 42, I saw what happens when change is done badly. And I look at my region and I go, right, we are on the cusp. One's already shut. We've got more shutting. They have to shut. We absolutely have to do something about climate change. No one is arguing with that. The argument is how do we better steer people through it? How do we lead? And where I was going earlier with when I started thinking about this book, I was thinking of, you know, geez, we're on the cusp of all this change in my region. And then, of course, COVID hit. So (laughs) So here's some more change for you to think about, Leah. Here's a crazy example of when the change is out of your control It's happening whether you like it or not. And what are you going to do, leaders? Are you going to step up? Are you going to throw your hands in the air and say, I've got nothing? Or are you going to say, oh, the government's doing this to us. So, you know, I'm going to steamroll. So it was those things combined and watching and observing. Some leaders do it really well over the last couple of years and lead with a mix of warmth and strength and compassion and accountability. Some do it really badly. And that's what I wanted to capture in the book too. Lovely. All right. Now, uh, it's amazing on how many levels the concept of managing change effectively works. It, it happens. It, it works on the team level. Hey, your roster's changing. You six people. Let's manage that. And it's happening on a global level with, hey, we Absolutely. probably should stop burning fossil fuels, you know, it's pretty soon. Yeah. It's, you know, and it's, and change is hard and it's done badly pretty traditionally. So, People who work mm-hmm. in this space are uh, very important, Leah. You should uh, quit your consulting gig and get into politics, I think, and do a good job leading <laughs> oh, a, change It is globally. on the cards one day, <laughs> is I tell it? you. One day, it is on the cards. <laughs> hey, yeah, and, and you know what? There was a time where I used to shy away from these type of conversations on the pod because I didn't want to be controversial. I didn't want to take yeah. a stand. But you know what? It's not controversial. No, it's not controversial it's not. to believe that we need to do something about climate change and we're not doing a great job. And a large part of it is our poorly managed change process. So, and if I've offended anyone while I'm listening to this, I do not apologize because that is not a controversial position to take in my very humble opinion. And that's the thing. That's the the other thing. We we give this false equivalence to both sides of the story. They're not equivalent. And it's it's not controversial to sit where we're discussing it today. And in fact, I think we should get to the the, the point where we just mock the other side because it doesn't hold water. It is clearly transparently just loaded with vested interests. And that's that's very clear, and it's been very clear for more than a decade. But anyway, let's move on. This is not a political podcast, and I could very quickly go down that alley. Now, Leah, this is where you have to earn your keep. Let's talk through these five Cs. I want you to tell me all about them, one through five, what they Absolutely. look like, what the challenges are, and what we can do, what we can understand to successfully hit each of these five stages. And I'll ask yeah, a whole so bunch of really stupid questions along the way. No, I love stupid questions. No such thing. Curiosity is a leadership superpower, and it's one of the things I'm about to talk about. So this framework, five key elements that are essential if you want to lead people through change courageously because it takes guts, right? It takes courage to be able to really deal with people's feelings, and we have to do that when we're talking about leadership 
because leadership is about people. And as much as we would like to think sometimes that people are creatures of logic, we're not. We're creatures driven by emotion. So the five key elements where I want to start is the importance as a leader of creating clarity for your team. Now, when I talk about creating clarity, yes, there's stuff in that piece around if you know the message of the change, how you communicate that to your people and knowing your audience and getting your messaging right and all of those things are absolutely crucial. And I talk about those a lot in the book. However, you can create clarity for your people even if you don't know what the change is. And where you need to start with providing and creating clarity for your team is by asking yourself questions like, how do I want to lead through this change? How do I want my team to emerge through the change? What is our driver that we're going to unite behind? What are we really here for? And I saw a team do this really well during COVID, actually. It was an aged care facility. And I was working with this aged care facility prior to COVID and they had some terrible issues going on in their team, lots of bitchiness and, you know, real people problems in there. And the clarity they got through the emergency that was COVID was I worked with their CEO to get people together as much as you could in that sort of industry, but they were still face-to-face during COVID and get them to unite behind what's our core purpose here? suddenly we are on the front line. We are protecting the most vulnerable people in our community. Like This is what we are uniting behind. And that clarity, one of the really interesting things that happened for that team was at a time of incredible stress, the people problems melted away Mm. because they were all so crystal clear on what Mm. they were there for and what was important. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. One of the successful things about COVID, it was a terrible time for a lot of different reasons and more terrible for some than for others. But one of the things was, it was so clear. It was like, hey, there's a virus. It's really easily transmitted. That's why we need to do the change. It's yes. a kind of awareness. If you're thinking about the ad car model, the awareness was there, boom, right in your face. You didn't have to try very hard as a change manager to create the awareness because it was on every radio station and TV channel every time you turned it on. So the clarity, creating clarity enables a lot of action after that. Not all changes in organizations are that clear and they're not all as ubiquitous in terms of how often they're being spoken about and understood. So it takes a little bit more of a concerted effort to create that clarity. And as you say, create clarity for yourself and your team, get clear on how you want to navigate the change personally as a a group. It's making sure the way you deliver the message, you're not wrapping it up in fancy language. You're not making it cute. You're not doing the PR spin. You're keeping it really plain speak. And one of the things I think leaders miss in the conversation around Create Clarity when there is uncertainty, like you said, there's sometimes there is uncertainty and you don't really know what's going on, is we think, oh, we don't know the answer to those questions, so we'll just leave them out of the conversation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, worse. Yeah, let's bury it. Yeah, we'll just leave it out. And, you know, just really quickly, a great little framework. It's very basic, but 
that can be useful when providing clarity through an uncertain time or a change is, number one, here's what we know. Number two, here's what we're doing Mm. about it. Number three, here's what we don't know and actually verbalize it. It might be you say to your team, look, I know you've got lots of questions about this piece and the truth is I don't have those answers for you right now. So Mm. you actually name it because when we think, oh, I don't have those answers, I'll just leave that out. It becomes the elephant in the room mm. and you can That's bet your bottom dollar. That's what everyone's talking about. The fourth step there, so here's what we know, here's what we're doing about it, is number two. Here's what we don't know. And number four is, and here's how I'll let you know. Yeah. So this gives people that sense of a bit more trust and calm in that uncertain time because you're saying, you know what, I know you want to know this piece. We don't know it at the moment, but mm. my commitment to you is that as soon as I have the information and I'll keep asking the question and trying to find it out, and as soon as I have it, I will communicate that to you. And that will sound fantastic. And I reckon if you were to present that to your team in a time of change, they would love to hear those words, but you get one chance to prove that you will come back with that information. Oh, he's got to follow through. You will be honest about, here's what we know, here's what we're going to do, here's what we don't know. And here's how I'm going to let you know when I find out. You get one chance because yep. people are ready to be anxious. And you've, if you've started that way, that's great leadership to kick it off with. And they're going, okay, hey, maybe this leader yep. is going to manage us through this. Maybe they're going to lead us through this courageously. But they'll be pretty quick to jump into the cynical basket if you don't follow oh, yeah. through on that. I love that. That's number one. What's number two, Leah? Number two is connect with curiosity. So great at the start with delivered the message and created the clarity we can. But now it's time to show your people you care and to get really curious about what's going on for them. How are they feeling about the change? What are their concerns? You know, what are they resisting? You know, we often resist change. What are they resisting and why? Now, this isn't just a nice thing to do. This isn't just a fluffy thing to do. It gives you crucial information to help you lead your people. The more you know and understand your people, the better you can lead them. So yes, of course, this empathy piece, which curiosity is essentially empathy in action, right? It's showing that you care because you're trying to connect with what they're experiencing and understand it. And the only way you can do that is if you show interest and actually ask questions. So getting really curious about where your team's at. And that information is often a goldmine because you can then go away and go, right, geez, these are the concerns of my people. Which ones can I address? Which ones can maybe I allay? Which ones maybe do I have to go up the chain? And which ones are complete misunderstandings that are giving people anxiety about something that's actually not real, something that was a myth and scuttlebutt, which as you know, in organizations, that's a huge part. Absolutely is. Often people, you know, particularly if change has done bad in the past, right? Yes, yes. It's one of the key effects. reasons people resist change. You might be a great right. leader. You've come in. Yeah, they've got had a bad experience. They've heard it all before. Geez, the last leader told us this mm. and you should, then he sold us down the river mm. or she sold us down the yeah. river. So this is, again, though, where you have to show your people you care and you have to care about their feelings and emotions. And I, like I said at the start, I deal with a lot of skeptics. So I have had plenty of managers say to me, but Leah, emotions don't belong in the workplace. I don't do feelings. And quite frankly, I just don't care. 
what's going on for my people? And my, my response to that- <laughs> You're fired. Why are we in leadership? <laughs> but my response to that is, do you want people to do their best work for you or not? Because often those are the same leaders who, who will come to me and say- About the, about I, the performance of their in, staff. Mm-hmm. And they'll also say, but we still need to get good performance and we still need to hit our KPIs and how do we do that? during this change? Why can't I just get them to focus? If you're ignoring their concerns and their feelings, then expect them to grow. And there's a great Brene Brown quote, and I'll paraphrase it, but essentially she says that leaders must either invest a reasonable amount of time dealing with the feelings and concerns of your people or expect to waste a huge amount of time dealing with people problems, whether Mm. it's conflict, sick leave, stress leave, high turnover of staff. So it's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart smart thing to do. So right. And that you know, that that ability to find the time and let's be honest, the emotional energy to have those conversations with staff, especially at the beginning of a change process where anxiety might be high when there's a vacuum of, of knowledge, especially having the courage, the time, the empathy to put aside, have those conversations with people one-on-one or in small groups is what a lot of leaders avoid. And if we go back to those three archetypes you talked about before, the steamroller will think it's not important because they're just steamrolling it. The middleman, the amplifier of concerns will think, well, any concern I hear, I just turn around and shout it back to head office and there I am leading my people. And the shirker will just will run away in a corner and hide. It's the steerer, yes. the courageous leader who will take it on and think, okay, this is either information for us to clarify, information for us to find out, something for us to work with. Love it. Excellent. Number two is leaders, connect with curiosity. And just quickly on that, for the leaders who think I don't have time, my <laughs> yeah. suggestion to you wait until it becomes a real problem and see how your time goes then. You do not have time to not do it. You cannot afford to not, not do this. Get mm. It's that old adage of slow down to go fast. Mm. Spend a little bit of time sharpening getting serious, absolutely sharpening your saw, and then you're going to have a much better chance of steering people through. Like it. Great. Number one is create clarity. Number two is connect with curiosity. What's number three, Leah? Number three is challenge with candor. Because yes, we have to lead people through change with warmth and empathy, but we do still need to hold our people accountable for their performance and behavior. Now, I know a lot of the leaders I work with will want to jump straight from one to three. They want to do create clarity, challenge with candor. Yeah, because I want to avoid <laughs> those change. I want to avoid those sapping conversations at number exactly, two, Leah. Exactly. Exactly. Or some go so far the other way and do the warm, touchy-feely bit and they'll do the full empath and forget that they have to hold their people accountable Mm. for still doing the Mm -hmm. job and for behaving appropriately. And here's something I'm really passionate about and I do talk about it a lot in the book. When I'm talking about challenge with candor, I'm talking about challenging mindsets, making sure people aren't going down the spiral of worrying about things that they can't control or influence. I'm talking about challenging focus. I'm talking about, though, also challenging behavior. And this is something that I see too many leaders drop the ball on because they seem to see performance and behavior as two separate things. Performance 
and behavior are one and the same. Behavior is part of performance. And during change, you need to be very careful about people whose behavior becomes quite negative, really toxic because of the impact that can have on a culture of a team. But too often, I will see leaders say things like, and this isn't just through a change, this can be in general in leadership, where leaders will say, yeah, but they're my top performer. They're my top salesperson. They're a bit of a jerk. No, they're, they're a bit not. Of a pre- they're not your top performer. <laughs> they're, making, they're making change difficult Yeah, and th- affecting and the people is- around them. They're poisoning a well. Absolutely. So I don't actually care if someone's your top salesperson, if the damage they're doing through their behavior is poisoning the team, you actually need to address that. You absolutely cannot let that go. And I see it again and again, leaders who don't address poor behavior, if their performance dropped off, if they stopped doing their job, they would have that conversation. But the fact that this person is being really negative, is dragging other people down, is maybe not regulating themselves and is getting aggressive with colleagues and being disrespectful to other people, if they're really dysregulated like that, you need to hold people to account. Now, how do you do that? Some people are probably listening going, well, great, but how do you challenge people with candor on this? And one of the most important things to do to hopefully avoid it even getting to that escalated place is if you're dealing with a change, you need to have a conversation with your people about what the shared expectations for behavior and performance are. And you need to not do that as the leader telling them what they are. This is involving your people in the conversation. This change is going to be challenging. It's going to, we're going to be experiencing high stress as a team. How are we going to navigate this? What does good behavior look like through this change? What don't we want to see? What are the core behaviors we're going to unite behind? How are we going to call each other out and hold each other accountable if we are struggling? And having this conversation so that everyone's on the same page about what good performance and behavior looks like so that then you can hold them accountable. You can't hold someone accountable for behavior and performance if you haven't told them what good behavior and performance look like. Totally agree. You you are describing all of the hard things about leadership. They're, yeah. they're the tough things, those kind of calling people out, out on behavior, taking the time to connect, being really honest about what's acceptable or not, yeah. not ignoring someone's poor behavior because they do good sales figures. All of those things are the really difficult things about Hotel. leadership, they're the dip, they're the hard parts. I love it. All right, number four. So hang on, create clarity was number one. Number two was connect with curiosity. Number three is challenge with candor. I love that word candor. It reminds me of Robin Sharma. Are you a Robin Sharma reader by any chance? I'm not a big Robin Sharma reader, actually. Sounds mm-hmm. like I need to be. Ah, no, well, it's just a word he uses quite often. It reminded me of him when I read it in your work. And number four, Leah. What is coach with compassion? So this whole model is about balancing that warmth and strength. So Coach with Compassion linked in some ways to connect with curiosity, but connect with curiosity is often those more team conversations and getting that feedback in a group dynamic. Coach with Compassion is about the importance of you as a leader making time for those one-on-one conversations with your people. Now, I get that that looks different for all different leaders depending on the size of your teams, 
depending on what's going on. So I get it that it's different for everyone. But these are the conversations where you're not coming in with your Superman cape on trying to solve everyone's problems. So I, I often, the resistance from leaders here is often, oh, but I don't have time to, you know, take on everyone's problems and fix everything for people. That's not what coaching is, folks. Coaching is asking great questions to help people find their own responses to them, Mm. their own way forward and solving their own problems. But you've got to create the space to do that, right? You've got to create the space to check in, not just with the people you think are struggling through the change. And this is a story I heard more than once from different leaders when I was looking at this chapter on Coach with Compassion. Some leaders understood the importance of having the one-on-one conversations, but they thought they'd just do it with people who seemed to be struggling. It was that extra support. And I'll never forget one leader in particular who shared with me a story of his star team member, and he left them till last. And actually, he was even questioning, do I need to talk to this person? Because they're still there. They're, you know, they're not the squeaky wheel. They're the mm-hmm. quiet person. Mm-hmm. They're doing their job. They're ticking along okay. And when he finally did have the coaching conversation with this person, it turned out they weren't okay. Mm. In fact, they were looking for another job. Wow. And because he hadn't invested the time in asking questions of everyone, you know, how are you navigating this change? Where do you want to be through this? What is challenging you? How do you feel about it? You know, where do you want to be? These are questions that we can ask people so that we get, again, more insight into where our people are at and the information you can get here is priceless. Now, some leaders I work with schedule meetings. They do scheduled one-on-ones. And the key thing with these conversations is they're not about your tasks. They're not about your to-do list. These are people-focused conversations where you are checking in with them as a human. You're trying to understand their motivations and drivers. Some do them as scheduled one-on-ones, but they don't have to be. They can be informal if that's, you know, the structure of your work. I also work with leaders who do walk the floors and they say, one day a week, I am going to walk the floor of the different plant that we have and intentionally set aside the time to have conversations with people to check in on how they're traveling. Now, Again, this is another one of those ones where we think we don't have time, but you don't have time. Leadership is about people. Management's about tasks. Leadership's about people. And if you are leading your people through change, you need to know what's going on for your people. Uh, absolutely. Look, that idea about a great leader must be a great coach is something I don't know if you know the work of Karen Morley. I uh, yes, had I a do. podcast with her way back in episode 107. I think you, Leah, are going to be episode 199. So almost 100 episodes ago, I spoke to Karen Morley, and it's all about just that concept right there, that a great leader must be a great coach. And if you're interested in that idea, go back and listen to Karen's episode. She's so articulate. The ideas are so powerful, and it's exactly what you're talking about there. Uh-huh. And I'm reminded of that saying there, Leah, what is it? A stitch in time saves nine. Uh, If you think you don't have time to get around and talk to people, you wait and still see how much time it costs you when you don't. It's one of those great leadership behaviors. I bet like you, Leah, I've moved around different industries. And I wonder if you've had the same experience where every industry 
thinks they're the busiest. Oh, no, no, you don't understand, David. In this industry, we are just so, we just don't have time. We don't have time. We don't have time. I've lost count of the number of industries who think they're the busiest industry in all of the world, and we just don't have time. And so often, I mean, the executives are always super busy. You know, you can book with them 18 months in advance for a half-hour conversation. But it's it's also the middle managers that have really squeezed the time and burnt out, stretched so many different ways with uh, changing priorities and deadlines and rework and what have you. And they're the people that can let themselves off the hook and a bit and say, look, you know, coaching conversations, that is a luxury I'll never have. I don't have that time where it really needs to become one of the priorities, especially when your organization is going through a significant amount of change. Those one-on-one coaching conversations, yes, they're draining. There's no doubt about that. They take a lot of energy and they take a lot of skill. And for a leader, especially someone who's new to it, it can feel risky, but the effectiveness of doing it compared to not is hugely powerful. And you would have seen that close up a lot of times, Leah. All right. We are quickly running out of time, but I would love to talk about number five. Number four was coach with compassion. Number five. Number five is commit with consistency. Now, you might be listening thinking, oh, that's a, you know, geez, that's a bit lightweight to finish this, this off with. Commit with consistency. Well, here's the thing, folks. This is where I see so many leaders fall down because what there's a whole host of things that can happen here. For starters, are your words and your actions aligned? Again, another old cliche, cliche because it's true. Mm-hmm. Actions speak louder than are words. You walking the and, talk? If and if your words and actions are not aligned, people will believe your actions every time. So if you're telling your people you you want them to navigate the change a particular way and you're writing them about behaviour and treating people with respect, you better make sure that you're modelling that as the leader. You better make sure that you are absolutely walking the talk. It is also, though, about making sure you keep banging the drum when it comes to the change message. I had a leader in a workshop a few weeks ago say to me, but I already told him, Leah. I told them in an email a month <laughs> yeah. ago. And he was like, He's probably serious. change communicated. Yeah. Change yeah. communicated. I told them once in an email. Mm. That is not how this stuff works. You need to look for opportunities to be delivering this message again and again through a whole host of different formats, through one-on-one conversations, through storytelling, through updates, through Q&As through asking the feedback. You need to reinforce the message and particularly if it's a complex or change that people are really reacting to, like there's redundancies or your organization's going to close. You think about when we have received poor news before, like bad news. It might be a relationship breakup or bad health news. And what often happens when we, you know, hear really hard news is we stop listening because in mm. our head we go into, oh, my Stunned. God, what does this mean yeah. for me? Yeah. And what am I going to do? For so we stop listening. And if you've just told them once, then expect them to go on the spiral of making up their own stories, Absolutely. which may be way off base. So this is about looking for the opportunity to stay consistent, to keep delivering the message to celebrate the successes if you've got some, to provide the updates, to catch people doing the right thing, to, you know, it's looking for all those different opportunities to 
yes, be consistent in how you show up as a leader and make sure you're walking the talk, but also make sure that you're seeing this. And gosh, I'm loathe to use the word, but is the one that fits. It's a journey, right? It is a journey to get people through the storm of change. It's not a set and forget. It's not a do once. You have to commit with consistency to lead people through. And something that I haven't spoken about yet tonight, and I know we're running out of time, but this is a question that I challenge leaders to ask. If you have the role of leading your people through change, you actually really need to ask yourself right at the start, are you up for it? Mm, that's, yeah. Are or, or, or do you just want the manager's paycheck? You just keen on the manager's paycheck or you actually want to be a leader? Yeah. And I, I challenged one of my coaching clients a couple of years ago on this because he had been through a massive change in his organisation and it had had a really big impact on him. He wasn't well after that change. It was so big so difficult that it really impacted him psychologically and emotionally. And he'd done a lot of work to come back from that. But his organization was about to go through another wholesale change. It was big. It was going to be tricky and tough again. And I asked that hard question of him. I said, are you in or are you out? Because you know what this has the potential to do. You really need to consider and make this a proactive choice. Are you up for this again or not? Now, he decided he was. But the difference in him when rather than see it as something that was happening to him as a leader compared to when he went, actually, now I'm going to reflect on this. Yeah, I know it's going to be hard, but I've got some learnings from doing it last time. I am in. We've got to make that decision because quite frankly, if you're a leader, you have a responsibility to your people. This is what leadership's about. It's about people and it's hard sometimes. And you have to have self-compassion, absolutely. You've got to lead yourself through the change. But if you're a people leader, leading them through the change is not optional. It's actually a requirement and it requires courage. You've got to commit with consistency, which was number five. And your point there made me think about two things very distinctly, the the walking the talk, and you finished with that as well. You, you've got to be committed to walking the talk and living the values and and living the change. But the other thing that you reminded me of when you use that example of when you get hit with big news, hey, our roster is changing, the rest of it just comes blah, 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 because you're sitting there thinking, holy dooly, our roster is changing. I've got to pick up the kids. My son plays yep. has soccer training that afternoon. Because you know what? All change is personal. And I did a fabulous, yes. had a fabulous conversation with a guy called Campbell McPherson episode number 161. And if you're, if you're on a change tear at the moment, listeners, and you're devouring change content, go and have a listen to Campbell McPherson on episode 161 of, of this podcast. He is fabulous. And he has five truths of change. I won't give away all five, go listen to them. But the second one is all change is personal. So you can be standing there as a CEO of an organization and say, hey, you know what, we've got this fabulous new strategy. We are going to triple revenue in the next 18, 18 months. We're going to double profits. We're going to open five new major centers around the world. No one's sitting there listening to that. They're sitting there thinking, am I going to have to move desks? But I like sitting next to Susan. Is my leader going to change? Am I going to be working on a different floor? Will my, will my start time, will I have to come to the office more often? Because all change is personal. And until we understand that truly as leaders and, and lead them one-on-one -on -one and connect with curiosity and coach with compassion, then we're just steamrollers and we're not really going to be effective leaders of change. All right, Leah, we have run out of time. Now I'm going to leave the final word to you. You have given us a wonderful description of your five C's. 
What's your final pitch? What's your overall pitch to leaders to empower them, to motivate them towards leading courageously and thoughtfully? Probably two points to leave on. One is anyone can lead through change. Just like we have a responsibility to, anyone can do this. You actually can be someone who's not a people leader and lead people through change by the way you show up. So this is absolutely doable for anyone if you're willing to get courageous and be vulnerable and do this work. The last point I would love to leave you on is actually where I would encourage you to start. If you are a leader and you've got a change happening and you're thinking, but where do I start here? The question I want you to reflect on is, what do I want to be known for? What do I want to be known for as a leader? And I just want to finish with a very quick example of the power of this. So this is a question that I had to ask myself because while writing this book, I was going through a significant change in my personal life in the form of a marriage separation. And I only share that because it's well known as being one of the most challenging times in a person's life, along with the death of a loved one. So all of this stuff that is in my book, I know it works because I applied every one of these strategies as the leader of a really challenging time in my personal life. And that question of what do you want to be known for is one I applied to myself at the start. And I said, Leah, this has potential to get rough, even though you know, we both still care about each other very much and we're family forever. How do I want to lead through this? And I came up with, I want to navigate this change with love, kindness, and compassion. Now, those words are easy to say. They are bloody hard to do Uh, in the challenge of a high-conflict situation. But when you as a leader get really clear, really clear on who you want to be, and these aren't words on a page, this is really true to you, They become your touchstone. They become the grounding piece that you can come back to when you get wobbly as a leader through the change. But who am I? How does someone who's living true to this behave? And I was able to come back again and again through that change to go, but this is who you are, Leah. So yes, you might be frustrated now. Yes, you might want to react, but you are leading through this change with love, kindness, and compassion. And that means that you respond in a different way. So I just encourage leaders to start there. Get really, really clear on what you want to be known for and how you want to lead through the change. What do you want to be known for? That is a fabulous place to leave it. Leah Metha, I have so thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that was Leah Metha. She's passionate about the world of soft leadership skills. Soft skills for far too long maligned, but now in the modern workplace, there are few more valuable. And how about Leah's five C's of leading courageously through change? Number one is to create clarity. Number two, connect with curiosity. Number three, challenge with candor. Number four, coach with compassion. And number five is commit with consistency. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Leah on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. And don't forget my new project, yourstorypod.com.au. 
and get in touch if there's someone you care about who should tell their life story. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Hold up. 